Father, I thank you that you are here in our midst and those who are viewing, you are right there in their midst. Father, I believe that you have a gift, a very precious gift for us this morning in the form of truth. And the truth is about the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, and what we can glean and, Father, what can change our lives. And I just ask you right now, Father, the one thing that I cannot do right now is that I cannot change hearts. And so I ask you, Father, by the power of your spirit, speak to hearts this morning, open eyes and allow us to see the glorious truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that has forever changed hundreds of thousands, millions of people. And as we look at that story today, speak to our hearts, every single one of us, exactly that truth we need to hear. Would you do that for us this morning, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have a confession to make to you this morning. I am a curious skeptic. Now, I'm not talking about skepticism concerning Christianity, been there, done that. I've had my questions about the Bible, but I'm a curious skeptic when it comes to fantastic stories. For example, if you were to tell me that the Pats beat my Philadelphia Eagles, I would doubt it first, and I would want evidence. So I am a curious skeptic. I ask a lot of questions. Now, I was that proverbial kid who would always ask that, that why question. Why, 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 why? I remember there were times in which, for example, I would, I would go to my dad as he would be working under the hood of our car, and I would walk up to him and I'd say, so dad, what you doing? And he would look up at me and say, I'm working on the car, Michael. Why? And he would say, well, let me put it this way. I think I had more nicknames than any of my siblings. But he would, he would just say, Mike, I'm trying to fix the timing belt so this car can run. Oh, what's a timing belt? It's the thing that makes the car run and the engine turn. Why? And he would look up at me and say, Michael, you know what? I think I hear your mother calling. You know, it was unusual that my mom would always call me right in the midst of those inquiries. It was so frustrating. Now, I can remember one time in which I did this, asking question after question with my sister, Ginny. Now, three things about my sister. Number one, she was one girl and had five brothers. Number two, she could hold her own. And number three, she was eight years smarter than me. So as I was asking all of these questions, she finally interrupted me and she said, Michael, I need to ask you, why do you ask so many questions? As a matter of fact, I think you ask them and you already know the answer. As a matter of fact, you're just right now asking me those questions to irritate me. Isn't that why you're asking me these questions? And I just simply looked up at her in disbelief and I said, so is that a question? Now, can I just say this? That don't get smart with me has two meanings. And apparently I chose the wrong one. So after I got up off the ground and brushed myself off, I looked up at her and I said, why did you do that? And the questions just started all over again. But I'm a questions asker. And many of you are questions askers just like me. Join the crowd. But here's what I'd like you to do. If you are a curious skeptic, you doubt before you believe, I'm going to encourage you that when it comes to this fantastic story of the resurrection of Jesus, just understand this. There are two definitions for the word fantastic. Number one is that it's rooted in fantasy. 
and imagination. But the second definition is that it is just an incre- just a, a glorious story. Amazing. I was a skeptic. I have been so thoroughly convinced that the resurrection of Jesus has actually taken place and that it's true. It's not rooted in fantasy. It's rooted in something extraordinarily good, attractive, and even amazing. So as we look at the resurrection story today in Mark chapter 16, so turn in your Bibles to Mark 16. I'm going to be reading from the NIV. But as I read, you may have questions. And I'm going to try and ask some of those questions that would come to your mind. And then we're going to go from there to be able to see that this story has such amazing significance for us today. It truly is an absolutely fantastic story. Are you there with me in Mark chapter 16? I'm going to start with verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. You know, skeptics like to play the lawyer and they ask questions. Now, if you're one of those this morning and you're watching, I would just encourage you that with your questions, seek real answers. Don't just try and bring confusion. Try to seek answers. Especially, why did he rise? And what is the significance of it for me today? Now, the first question is you're reading through this, or, or as a lawyer would do, he would want to pit witnesses against one another, hoping to find some inconsistency in these witnesses, eyewitnesses. And if he finds the inconsistency, he's going to come to the conclusion that someone's not telling the truth. So that's how many skeptics, when they approach this fantastic story of the resurrection of Jesus, they believe it's rooted in fantasy or imagination. And so they're going to try and find some of these inconsistencies. So here's the question they're going to ask. Number one, they're going to ask, how is it that, or or rather, what time did the women go to the tomb and find the tomb empty? Because as they'll point out, rightly so, it says in John, while it was still dark. Matthew, it says at dawn. And then Mark, as we just read, it says just after sunrise. So which of these is right? Well, let me ask you this. How long do you think it would take for Mary Magdalene, should she have gotten up while it was dark and headed out her door before the sun had risen to actually get to the tomb? And not only that, understand they brought spices that would take some time to gather. And then 
go to some of these ladies' homes or meet up somewhere and then travel to the tomb. But by the time they got to the tomb, the sun had risen. The stone they discovered was rolled away. And so there's nothing inconsistent with these eyewitness testimonies in any way in the Gospels. Now, a second question you might ask is, where was the angel when he was talking with the ladies? Because, as our skeptic friend would, would point out to us, Matthew actually tells us, one of our eyewitnesses, he tells us that an angel came, rolled the stone away, sat on top of the stone, and the guards that would have been four of them, four Roman guards, fell to the ground like dead men. They fainted. Oh my goodness, if I witnessed that, I think I would do the same. But when the women came to the tomb, Mark tells us that they went inside the tomb and that's where they saw the angel. So is Matthew right? He was actually sitting on the stone or is Mark and Luke right? That the angel actually spoke to them in the tomb. Well, what we discover is Matthew has this tendency to skip from scene to scene with not, not always telling us. As a matter of fact, can you imagine the women, if the angel was still sitting on the tomb, approaching the tomb, seeing the stone rolled away, and four guards laying on the ground? See, it didn't happen that way. So obviously, as the guards woke up after some time, they fled to concoct their story that Matthew 28 tells us they did. That's when the women came. The angel was not sitting on the stone at that time, but in the tomb. And so you see, again, we see a consistency here in the eyewitness accounts. But here's another question. How many angels were there actually? Because Matthew talks about one. Mark here talks about one. But Luke talks about two angels in the tomb. Which one is right? All I can say is there were at least two. And one of them did the talking. So as anyone writing history, they don't necessarily include everyone, but they actually sometimes speak of just the one talking, even though there may have been many. So there were at least two angels, and only one of them did the talking. Again, we're going to see a consistency here. Number three, why, according to Mark, did the ladies come with spices to anoint Jesus' dead body? when John says that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had already poured the spices Friday afternoon before they interred him on Jesus' body to preserve it. Well, and, and may I also add that Mary and other women saw them wrapping up the body and taking it to the tomb. They saw where the tomb was. Well, can I just ask you this? If you were Nicodemus and you were Joseph, why would you put the spices on his body as he is being as you're wrapping him in the sheet at the foot of the cross and then carrying Jesus' dead body and 75 pounds of spices to the tomb? Would it not be more reasonable to have first gone to the tomb, put the spices in the tomb, and then come to the cross? And that is what Mary and the other ladies saw. And they wrapped his body up, took it to the tomb, and it's there that they poured the spices on him to preserve him. 75 pounds, we're told. So again, there's no inconsistency here. Now here's another one that has kind of come up, most particularly with the advent of the internet, but even before that, and that is that people believe 
that the resurrection of Jesus Christ and Christianity as a whole is actually a borrowed religion from the pagan myth of of mystery cults in the Roman Empire. Now, specifically, Mithraism. There's others, but in Mithraism, there's a couple of things that if you go online that they like to point out. Number one, that Mithra or Mithraism was first taught somewhere between 1,600 B.C., hundreds of years before Christ. You will also discover on these websites that they'll say things like Mithra was born in a cave. Wow, just like Jesus. That he had 12 disciples, just like Jesus. That he taught baptism, that he even shared a Lord's Supper or a communion, and that he too died and was raised from the dead. And so their conclusion is that Christianity is a fabrication based on what they believe, Mithraism. Well, here's the problem, though, that we discover. Number one, that this these things that I just read to you are more the stuff of internet rumors. He was not born in a cave. He was actually born from a rock in a mountain. There's a picture of Mithra with the 12 zodiac signs surrounding him, not 12 companions. And there's nowhere, as people talk or wrote in the 2nd and 3rd century about Mithraism, that's 2nd and 3rd century AD, that refers to Mithra having 12 disciples. His baptism wasn't into water for repentance. To be initiated into Mithraism, you had to stand under the bull and you had to, I'm going to be a bit graphic here, cut him open as his blood drenched you. And then their communion was eating his flesh. That is what Mithraism actually teaches. And there is no evidence that Mithra even died, let alone was raised from the dead three days later. It is all the substance of internet rumors. The Mithraism of 600 BC is vastly different from the Roman cult version embraced by many of the Roman soldiers. And this Roman cult has left no archaeological evidence behind dating before 140 AD. So here's my question. Who borrowed from whom? It would appear that Mithraism actually borrowed from Christianity. So as we are playing the skeptic and as we are asking questions, then we realize that these questions actually have very good answers. Is this fantastic story, though, rooted in legend, or is this fantastic story actually rooted in history? We might point out with a few questions, why, if you were, let me ask you, let me put it this way, if you were to have concocted or embellished a story, and it truly is a legend that this Jesus, he never rose from the dead, the story just got embellished as it was told over and over and over again. But here's what we realized, that after 30 or even 40 years, legend doesn't creep in to where eyewitnesses saw the event. It takes, they say, up to three generations. That would then place it around somewhere in the mid-second century A.D. Okay? But here's what we find. If this was a story 
that the disciples were trying to sell the public or the followers of Jesus were trying to sell the public, then why is it, number one, that they would have Jesus appearing first to women when women were not credible in a court of law? And you wouldn't, in Jesus' day, take a woman's word for it. Why why did Jesus... Why did the Gospels tell us that Jesus appeared first to women? Unless that's just the way it happened. Why would you have your leader, Peter, deny his master three times and embarrass himself? Unless that's what actually happened. And what results then is more a story of forgiveness and redemption. And why have Jesus' followers cowering in an upper room behind a locked door unless that's what actually happened and we have these cowardly men being transformed into courageous men? That's the power of the resurrection that changed them. And many people saw Jesus after his resurrection. Skeptics attribute this to hallucination, but we now know that no two people can either dream or hallucinate the same event. And so where are we going with all of this? You see these stories that are recorded. They're recorded this way, not because they're embellished or rooted in legend, but because this is the way it actually happened. And if the resurrection were simply a fabrication, why would the disciples die for something that they knew to be a lie? Eleven of the twelve disciples were martyred. You see, they saw something, and it changed them forever. Saul, who became the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, he encountered the resurrected Christ. He was an antagonist. He threw Christians into jail. He had them killed. Here is a man, and skeptics don't deny it, his life was transformed. How? Because he saw the resurrected Christ, and he was absolutely convinced that Jesus had been raised from the dead and that he had been persecuting a live Messiah who was ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus' resurrection appearing to the Apostle Paul, changed his life forever. This is not just the truth of the resurrection. This is the power of the resurrection. So now, let me just ask you this. As we're talking about the resurrection, and what an amazing, fantastic story it is, what are the implications of this resurrection? What does it mean for me? What's the big deal? Okay, so Jesus was dead, but now he is raised. That's a, that's a great story. But how does it fit in with Christianity? Let me read a passage to you. It's found in Ephesians chapter 1. And this is what it says. It says that Paul prays that the Ephesians may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So because of Jesus' resurrection, there is power now, resurrection power available to everyone who believes. Now, what type of power is this? Paul goes on in the next chapter. And in verse 1, he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live 
when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Scripture tells me that I was dead. I was dead in my sin. My sin, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, it actually acted as a barrier, a wall, a separation between God that created me and me. My sin separated me from God. Now, we learned this last week when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the Father had placed my sins and your sins on his son Jesus. The Father could not even look upon his sin. As Paul says, he actually had become sin for us. That's how identified Jesus became on the cross with your sin and my sin. He took that sin upon himself and the punishment that he received, the punishment that brought me peace with God was upon him. You see, that's the power of the cross. And as we see here, Paul tells us, Mike Curtis, you are dead in your sins. As a matter of fact, it goes on to say, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Because for God, sin has to be punished. It has to be. He can't just wave a magical spiritual wand over you and say you're forgiven. Something has to be done about that sin because sin is an addiction. And it ch sin changed me and it changed you. It made me an addict to it. Kind of like in The Lord of the Rings with Gollum and the ring. There was an addiction. It was his precious. That's our sin. Our sin. Whether you're aware of it or not, if you're outside of Christ, outside of his kingdom, and you've never trusted in Jesus, today you're going to find that you are addicted to your sin, and it is your precious. I remember when I was a kid, I would play with slugs. And I would get the slug slime on my fingers. I won't tell you what I did to them. But I would get the slug slime on my fingers. And no matter how much I would wash in water or even with soap, I couldn't get it off. I'd have to scrape it off with my fingernails. And it just took forever. Or you could use paint thinner. Sin is like that slug slime stuck to us. It just cannot be removed. And so I, I need us to realize that according to, to Scripture, see, that sin killed me. Not only did it kill me, I couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't get rid of it. No matter how many good works I would do, I could not remove my sin. I couldn't just say, you know what, God, give me just a moment. Give me maybe a couple of years and... I, I'm, I'm changed now, and I'm going to try and do a lot of good works, and I'm going to make you happy with me. And I know that I've done some sins in the past, but eventually my good works will outweigh my sins, and then you'll be happy with me. Paul doesn't tell us that. Here's what he says in verse 4. But because of our good works, he says no, but because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. Church, made us alive 
with Christ Jesus, even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And that is the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ available to all those who believe. He takes that dead sinner, that Mike Curtis, and raises him to life, newness of life in Christ, sins washed away, bought by the precious blood of Christ. I now, believing in Jesus, I belong to him. I belong to God. I belong to his son, Jesus. He's removed the sin. See, that was the issue all along. No matter how many good works I would do, I realized I could not, it could not balance over, it, it could not outweigh my sins. That wasn't the issue. The issue was my sin. It was the slime. It was that which I could not in and of myself remove, but only the cross. And when that was paid, when that was forgiven, and that debt canceled, the Bible says that suddenly by his spirit, he raised me to life by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. See, this is why Jesus had to rise from the dead. Not simply because we were not going to serve and worship a dead Messiah, but because his resurrection power is now made available to all of us so that through faith in Christ, I am no longer dead. I'm no longer a sin addict. I am truly set free and changed. By the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you a story. I'm now 58 years old. My brother Ken is 68, 68 years old, so he's 10 years smarter than me, right? And just last year, sometime in the fall, my he, he, well, let, let me back up even further than that. Understand something about where my brother was at last fall in this decision he made almost 30 years ago, having been raised in a Christian home, almost 30 years ago, his one and only son was killed in an automobile accident. David, his life had just started turning around. My brother Ken was proud of what he had been doing. And his life was taken, snuffed out like that. A bitterness began to creep into my brother Ken's heart. An anger, depression. He began turning that bitterness outward. Number one, to those that invited his son to the bar. And then number two, actually towards his family. One of those targets was my brother Rob. Some others in the family. And there was a wedge that had now come between my brother Ken, his family, and others. And this wedge remained there for probably at least a decade. In the meantime, my brother Ken was searching because he was feeling as if Christianity was inadequate. Christianity that he had understood was not enough. And in his life, 
of depression, anxiety, life that when he waked up in the mornings and it was cloudy or rainy, he despised it. Christianity just didn't seem enough. It was a religion, a set of rules to follow, and it was inadequate. He started taking other bits and pieces of religions, mostly new age, and adding them on top of what he basically believed concerning God, and it morphed into something that when he viewed his world and life itself, there was just such inconsistency and it didn't make sense until some 30 years later, just last fall, as my sister was having opportunity to minister to him the love of Christ and the truth of the gospel. And my brother sat down and he read two books that began to piece together Christianity for him and why Jesus came, why he had to die, why he had to rise from the dead, and how does now this world even make sense in view of the suffering and the love of God? And he says his eyes were opened. And he he related to me, he said, Mike, as I began to discover how much Christianity made sense, and as I realized that the Bible is such an amazingly unique book, Inerrant, that is, the authors kept from error. I turned to Christ and I received salvation. And he tells me that his life was forever changed. 68 years old. And if you're older than 68, it is not too late to be able to turn to Christ and experience this resurrection power of Jesus Christ. He can wash away your sin. He can raise you from the dead, even though right now you're dead in your transgressions and sins. He can raise you up and seat you with Christ in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Give you hope. Change your life. I want to take just a moment right now, and I want us to see something in Mark's gospel, in Mark 16. So turn back there with me if you would. John 5.24 tells us, Jesus tells us, that those who believe in him would be, would cross over from death to life. That this is the testimony of everyone, not just my brother Ken or myself, you here out watching. This is, this is the testimony of everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. Everyone. You are changed by the power of the cross and the resurrection. There are no exceptions to this. And as we look further, Mark begins to unfold for us three accounts of Jesus' appearances. And these appearances change these people forever. The first one is Mary Magdalene. Let me read it for you. Because I think we're going to find in here something that we can identify with. There's a tendency on our part to play that skeptic and to question and wonder if Christianity is real. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? And if he did, where is he in my life today? And so it says here in verse 9, when, Je- when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, are you there with me in Mark 16, 9? 
He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who, had, and who were mourning and weeping when they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Now let's understand Mary Magdalene, early in Jesus' ministry, had been ministered to. Seven demons, Scripture tells us in Luke 8, had come out of her. And I'm going to just tell you right now, demonization is real. It is not just our own word for what we presently call mental illness, though in some cases maybe. But the truth is, it is not. Demons are real, and seven of them had controlled Mary Magdalene. She was in bondage. She was helpless. Her testimony is that this person, Jesus, came to her and commanded those demons to come out and be gone, and she was set free, forever free. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, I, I, I have witnessed people in this kind of condition, eyes rolling in the back of their heads, shrieking, squealing, um, uncontrolled, never experiencing something like this before nor after because they were set free. This is real. Mary Magdalene's testimony was one drenched in sin and controlled by Satan himself the ruler of the prince, the, the ruler of the power of the air, Paul told us in Ephesians chapter 2. A slave, bondage, chains, set free by the ministry, by the power, by the authority of Jesus Christ. And he now appears to her. And she experiences once again, John tells us, she didn't recognize him when she first met him, first saw him after his resurrection. She was actually depressed, weeping, thinking that he was the gardener, and he looked at her in her eyes, and all he said was, Mary. And she realized who this was. She experienced the resurrected Christ. She had to tell somebody. And when she went to tell these 11 disciples hiding for fear in an upper room that the Jews would come, the authorities would come and arrest them too and crucify them as well as their Lord, when she came to them, their initial response was doubt. She had experienced something real, but the others doubted. We come now to a second group. And these are two on, their, on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus joins them, Luke 24 tells us the entire picture. Verse 12, afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. And if you were to look to Matthew, excuse me, Luke 24, here's what you would find, that Jesus joined them and it says their faces were downcast. They were so discouraged. The one they thought that was the Messiah was now dead. And it was now the third day, and they had heard rumors that this Jesus that they believed in was the Messiah had been 
raised from the dead. The, the, the angels had actually appeared to some women that Peter even witnessed the empty tomb. And as they're walking along and talking with this person that we know is Jesus, but they don't recognize him as such, Jesus challenges them. And he says, are you so slow in heart to grasp this? Don't you realize that the Messiah had to suffer? So for these two men on the road to Emmaus, their issue was more intellectual because what Jesus now does is he begins to go through from Moses, the first five books of the Bible, through the Bible, and he begins to, sh- begins to show them that the Messiah had to suffer. If you were to turn to Isaiah 53, 12 verses, all 12 verses speak of this Messiah person who is going to come and the sins of the world would be laid upon him and he would be suffered, that he would be suffering for the sins of others and that the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, that the Father crushed him, as it says. Wow, for you and me. I remember some years ago, I was talking to a Jewish friend of mine. And he said, Mike, why, why do you believe in this Jesus as the Messiah? As a Jew, he did not believe that this Jesus, who, by the way, was very Jewish, was not the Messiah. And so I, I encouraged him. I said, look, here's, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to read Isaiah 53, all 12 verses. And when you do that, and read it in the Hebrew, because he, he could read Hebrew, understand it. And when next week, when I come back, I want you to tell me, who do you think Isaiah 53 is talking about? So he did that. When I saw him the very next week, he, 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 he asked, I, I asked him, and he, I asked him, I said, so did you read? He said, yeah. And there was just like this kind of hesitancy, puzzled expression on his face, and I said, So who is Isaiah talking about? And he shook his head and he said, Mike, I'll be honest with you. It really sounds like you're Jesus. And I said, yes, it does. Because this Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's your Messiah. And these two on the road to Emmaus, they weren't just looking for an experience. They were looking, they needed an intellectual challenge. They needed to understand that it was all God's plan for the Messiah to suffer, but now he had been raised from the dead. And as Luke goes on in chapter 24, he says that as Jesus, they arrived in Emmaus and they were eating dinner, Jesus blessed the food. And just the way he did it, their eyes were opened and they understood this was Jesus. We had been walking with this Jesus who is now raised from the dead. And they got it, they understood it, and now the experience changed them. And so Mary Magdalene, with this amazing experience, runs and tells the disciples they don't believe her. The two on the road to to Emmaus have been challenged intellectually with who this Jesus is that the Messiah actually had to suffer and of course now rise from the dead. And the disciples did not believe them either. Now as they're gathered in the upper room, Luke 24, not just the two on the road to Emmaus, others, the 11 disciples right there, Jesus appears to them. And Mark, 
very briefly tells us when Jesus stood there before them, he rebukes them. Yeah, he rebukes them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had told them. Now, maybe you this morning, as you're thinking about Christianity, the resurrection of Christ, maybe you want to experience this death to life truth. Maybe you want to experience the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ yourself. Maybe as we're going through some of these questions and answers that you're coming to the conclusion, maybe, that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. That this fantastic story of the resurrection of Jesus is not rooted in fantasy or imagination, but it's rooted in truth and history. And it is an extraordinarily good, attractive, amazing truth that he rose from the dead for you. I'm going to just tell you, Jesus rose from the dead to change your life. The 11 in Luke 4 were told, some of them still, even with Jesus standing there, did not believe. Luke puts it this way. Some still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. This is too good to be true. Have you ever felt that way? That, that something in your life, some good news, some fantastic story was just too good to be true? This is just absolutely amazing that Jesus can actually change me and rid me of this sin slime, this addiction, this connection. With, he can actually break it. He can actually allow me to walk in freedom. Jesus said, believe in the truth and the truth will set you free. That's, that's for me too. And this slavery to sin broken. Ah, this, this, this is too good to be true. That it can actually change the way I live? It changed the way my brother Ken lived. He tells me that after he received salvation, this free gift of eternal life rooted in the resurrection of Jesus, he began to read the Bible. And as he was reading, he came across a passage he'd heard before. And that is, Jesus said, if you do not forgive others, neither will I forgive you. How, when you have been caught up in bitterness for most of your life, how do you change that and forgive and live at peace with others? By the resurrection power of Jesus. And he related to me, he said, Mike, Something happened in my life like 40 years ago. And I remember when that happened. I was a teenager in middle school or high school. But he recounts the time in which he was with his best friend, Mark. And on their trek, as they were going through um, just in the wilderness and, and hiking, 
He was ahead of Mark, and he heard a noise from Mark, and he turned around, and Mark had slumped to the ground, not breathing. And as my brother rushed over to him, checking his pulse, checking his breathing, he began to give him CPR, not knowing what to do. They didn't have cell phones back then. He picked up Mark's lifeless body, threw it over his back, and began to walk for nearly a mile, interspersed with setting him down and doing CPR, hoping that he would be able to rescue his best friend Mark from death. And, and he was calling the whole time, hoping someone, someone would hear him and come to his rescue and save his friend. Eventually, some heard. And they rushed him to the hospital. And that's where Mark passed away. My brother was traumatized by this. For 40 years, he never had a best friend. Someone that he would be able to relate with in his hunting and fishing and just the things that he's interested in. And, and, and he's extremely close to his wife, but all of this time, 40 plus years, looking for another guy that he could bond with. And I'm sharing this story with you because one of those people that he had become embittered with and had shut out of his life was his younger brother, Rob. And when he read that passage, if you do not forgive, neither will I forgive you. He realized he needed to get this right with my brother, Rob. One day, he rode over there about 30 minutes journey, sat down, and for hours and hours talked with my brother Rob. Reconciliation, forgiveness occurred. Their lives were changed. Their relationship completely changed. My brother Ken, as I was speaking with him just this past week, he said, Mike, this is amazing. Because as Jesus has been changing me, and my brother Rob was saved many, many years ago, back around 1990, 91 or so. I am now building this relationship with Rob. I, and he said, I'll go over there in late afternoon, and I'll just spend hours and hours and hours, and we'll talk to the wee hours of the morning every Monday. And he paused and he said, you know what, Mike? I found my best friend. My brother Rob. That is the power of the resurrection of Jesus to take someone so caught up in bitterness and hurt and depression and to change them, to see the world differently, to see people differently, and now to see relationships mended. That only happens by the power of our great God who has made that resurrection power available to you. So here is my question. Have you ever experienced that power? You'll never be able to work hard enough so that those good works will ever outweigh your sins. The sins have to go. The record expunged. Only the cross can do that. Only faith in Jesus Christ can change that 
and open the door for God's grace to extend that resurrection power to you and for you to be forever changed. I'd like to close in prayer right now. I want to give you the opportunity, just like my brother Ken had, for that resurrected Jesus, that fantastic story of him rising from the dead to now change you. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that in and of myself, I cannot change. With all of my best efforts, I truly cannot change and I cannot get rid of the filth of that sin in my life, the slime, and only by the power of the cross will that happen. And so right now, I choose to follow Jesus. I choose to believe in Jesus Christ. And I just ask you right now, Father, as people are crying out to you and saying, God, please come and rescue me and give me new life in Jesus Christ by the cross, by the resurrection, would you do that right now? And set prisoners free. Heal the brokenhearted and give release to the oppressed because this is the favorable year of the Lord. This is our jubilee in which captives are set free. Right now, Father, set the prisoners free by your grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.